Ghouls. Happy Hump Day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hello, gorgeous, gorgeous girls, and welcome to another episode of Girl Friends. I'm Lindsay. Uh, this week, Lucy is off on her holidays. She's in Italy, not jealous at all, but I'm joined <laughs> today by a very special guest, Belle. How are you doing? Hi, I I am I am doing well. I uh Oh, it's a busy time. It's a busy time. Uh but an exciting time, I think. Uh having a having a good time getting to study and do what I love to do. Very happy to be here. So so excited to be here. Good. Um and today for the spooky sleepover, you have brought the exorcist. Absolutely excellent choice. Um what made you decide to bring the exorcist to us to tonight <laughs> well uh you have an extensively long list of things that you covered um and and going through it i was like oh well i guess i can't bring that one i can't bring that one um i was actually very excited though that you hadn't covered the exorcist it's uh it's one of those big pieces in horror media and history and studies um and and i got very excited in particular because demons are a major part of my research um i i am i grew up and still am a devout christian so i don't quite know how i got here uh <laughs> but now this is like one of the major things that i do uh and so i i wanted to discuss one of those really big pieces of horror history as well as provide uh some of my own flitting thoughts flitting hellish little thoughts uh as as would be deemed entertaining <laughs> fab um so do you want to tell our lovely listeners a bit more about how you go into horror and your love of demons yes i don't know if it's um, a love of demons but i don't but... an interest maybe <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both yeah um so i got into horror um when i started my master's degree so i got uh i i study a lot of theater that's all i know how to do now is theater um but i got started in on my masters and there was this moment where they were like yeah you get to choose like your field of research you don't you don't just learn everything but you you know you narrow in and focus on something you make that your thing and I went, oh my gosh, really? And I don't know like why that surprised me so deeply, but I was very elated by this idea. I thought all over the board of like, what do I want to do? And um, I landed on my fascination with monsters. I've always been a spooky kid, always loved Halloween, loved scaring myself to death with spooky stories. Um, and 
I realized that one of the things that just like deeply resonated with me was the way that we portray villains and monsters and what that means. Um, and I was able to find a professor at my school who did a lot of horror. And so I talked to him about it and was like, well, what's been your experience? And he's like, well, this is my favorite thing to do. Uh, it's fantastic. I highly recommend it if that's what you want. Um, and he sent me off to read um, this article. It's a it's a book chapter. Um, have you heard of The Seven Theses of Monster Culture by Jans? No, <laughs> we don't have time to get into that one. It's a, <laughs> that's the thing, but it's basically it's and I highly recommend it to anyone. You can just look it up online. There's PDFs of it everywhere. Um, but it's basically how to read a monster when they show up of just like, oh, this is what it means. And it kind of focuses about like what the monster means about the culture that created it. Um, and so after I got into that, I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to make this my whole personality. Uh, and then I did. <laughs> um, for the next several years on my master's, um, I was I was the spooky bitch of my school. Uh, I I now that's uh, is what I'm known for in my social circle in my department is um, I, I love I love doing horror. Um, I got into demons in particular because while I was doing my master's, um, I did a play called Dr. Faustus, which is about a guy who sells a soul to the devil um, so that he can have a friend and do some party tricks. That's a really bad nutshell of the story, but it's I'm not wrong. Um, and I loved that play. It's one of my favorites. Um, I, I worked on it with my best friend who played the demon. And we had a lot of conversations about what it means to be this archetypal other um, and, and what it means to represent um, not not always, not necessarily the satanic as like Christians conceptualize it, but just that archetypal other um and and the nuance they tend to be afforded and so i'm now currently in my phd um my candidacy is drawing nigh upon me and um i'm coming into trying to figure out what i want to do with my thesis my actual dissertation and i am really fascinated by this the clash between the holy and the unholy um and so not just again as not necessarily as Christians perceive and conceptualize good and evil, God and Lucifer, but um, as they tell a story, as they perform and embody um, fears, othering, that kind of thing. Um, that's that's kind of yeah where where I am now doing uh, spooky shit. I <laughs> in March I'm actually gonna go head up to a conference to go talk about um something that I if we have time I'd love to bring up today as well. But gonna go talk about some demons because I'm weird. I'm, I'm <laughs> I think the further that you go into academia, the weirder you get, the more esoteric that you get to be. And so now I'm I not only do horror, but now I I do demons. So <laughs> that actually sounds fascinating though. Like you gotta pick something that you want to do. <laughs> exactly. Like if you're like especially at this level of education, like you've been there for so long, like you might as well do something that you enjoy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> might as well choose something that you know you can wake up and be like oh I'm fascinated by this I would very much like to know more uh and I do I wake up every day and I go what what is going on here what is going on here uh let's let's crack into that <laughs> very lucky very lucky that I get to do that all day every day oh 
the, uh, that's the dream. Like, I know if Lucy was here right now, they'd be saying the exact same thing. Like, oh, wish that was me. <laughs> <laughs> it can be if you hate yourself enough to put yourself through more academia. <laughs> well, yeah, like a friend of mine recently pulled out of their PhD and they're just like it's too much stress and like there's yeah. no money in it I'm, like, I'm not uh-huh. doing it <laughs> yeah, no you gotta really love it man I was like I don't blame you babes okie um right so let's get into the exorcist because we kind of just spoke that. before we started recording there's so much to talk about so let's oh. go <laughs> there's so much there's so much with this piece uh do you want to just like start in with the story or any background or uh i'm just gonna go through some little technical bits and then we'll get into the plot love it love it <laughs> um so the imdb plot for the exorcist is when a teenage girl is possessed by a mysterious entity her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her daughter the Exorcist came out in 1973. She's 50 years young uh, and stars Ellen Bernstein, Max von Sydow and Linda, Linda Blair. This was directed by William Friedkin, who also directed To Live and Die in LA and The French Connection, which he won an Oscar for, and was written by William Peter Blatty. He wrote... He, was a screenwriter and he also wrote the book so as soon as he wrote the book he's like i'm writing the screenplay and uh he won an oscar for the screenplay for this film and he also worked on the exorcist 3 and exorcist the beginning so his life's work it looks like like i said we all got to do something in the morning that that gets us going (laughs) uh william and i are are kindred it it appears (laughs) yes um So let's get into the film. So we start off in northern Iraq and this Mm -hmm. is when we kind of get the first like meeting shall we say between Father Merrin and this demon. I don't think that the demon is ever named Pazuzu in The Exorcist but we also don't think so. No. Yeah. No. No. It's uh I mean it's a mythic demon king amalgamation uh mystic thing from uh mesopotamia babylonia um yeah he just kind of shows up in the statue uh it's a nice spooky moment you pan over you see two dogs fighting right and uh, you're like hey something is wrong uh you don't exactly know what uh for me the something wrong that's happening here is uh colonialized uh colonial behavior i should say this uh <laughs> we, we we love to see a white man coming over to the middle east to do some uh digging and finding some but that's neither here nor there uh we'll move right along <laughs> i won't um, go on that rant oh no we'll be here all day <laughs> i'm gonna go into that anyways um, I love the kind of standoff shot between the the statue and Merrin. It's very, you know, like foreshadowing yeah. for what to come, what's to come. I was gonna um, say we, we we see that kind of angle uh, later on. I won't give it away, but we can circle back to that. 
Um, so we then go to Georgetown, USA. Um, we're in Chris McNeil's house. Um, she's there with her daughter, and we start to hear like random little things happening about the house. And when I was watching it last night and paying like a bit more attention, I loved like how kind of subtle it is throughout the film. Like you're not like straight yeah. away like Damon. Um, <laughs> it's it's all these little things that happen and you can totally see how Chris like completely loses her mind throughout this film trying to figure out what's going on oh yeah poor woman I love I love though this setup of like this is this is how I I, I feel like now it's iconic that like when you hear like that skitter scattering in your house everyone immediately is like oh fuck demons um I <laughs> i'd love to blame supernatural for that but really i'm gonna blame this i'm gonna blame this because now uh it's it's not ghosts it's it's never ghosts now it's now it's all about demons uh i'll blame the exorcist for cementing that (laughs) in our zeitgeist skitter scatter you're about to be possessed um what are your thoughts on chris as a character in this film um i it's always interesting when you start off a story when you start off a narrative with a mother um especially someone like chris who's a working mother she's a she's an actress very famous uh in in this world actress working um with her director friend um and it's interesting to posit her kind of as someone sucked into the secular world who's now being faced with um confronting the metaphysical when that's not something that she's ever really been a part of right is that like she doesn't mind uh sunday is a day of rest for her in that it's it's the day where she doesn't work but it's not necessarily a day of rest in that uh she goes and worships or anything like that and so you know she immediately turns to science first after i don't want to get too far ahead but like um as soon as reagan starts displaying these symptoms and she immediately turns to science i think um chris sets up that dichotomy between secularism and spirituality um and and represents sort of that perhaps capitalist dismissal of the metaphysical um but as a i i don't know i as a as a feminist i think more could have been done with her character <laughs> i think again like when you're when you're setting up the mom like that to to be uh i don't know i don't necessarily want to call her like the kickoff um but when when you're setting her up to frame this and then you basically take her away as soon as the fathers show up uh, i don't think that's eh. it's it's debatable it has been debatable uh it has been a, a point of contention before um i i think chris could have done a, a little bit more than just sort of set up the first act but yeah I agree like there's something that irks me a little bit about her and I don't know I just feel like she crumbles and I don't feel like this woman who travels the world and is a single mom and acts and makes her own money would just be a shrieking mess I just I don't buy it Um, but one thing I did like what you said there and I think this is why it's like possibly so timeless as well is that I feel like 
certainly in the UK anyway, the UK is a Christian country, but I don't think a lot of, like, most people don't actively practice Christianity, but, like, they'll go to church on, like, you know, at Christmas and Easter and stuff like that. Like, I was never... You didn't use your parents at this point, right? And I feel like Chris (laughs) is kind of that person as well and I feel like that's maybe what makes it so timeless because I think yeah like nowadays a lot of people would maybe go straight to the doctor they're obviously not going to go straight for an exorcism and it's that way that she kind of has to suspend her disbelief to before she's like right this is actually what is going on and I feel like from the 70s to now I feel like that's how everyone would react in that situation as well yeah I do appreciate that realism I do appreciate the fact that you know they take the time to go on this little scientific walkabout um it does it does feel very realistic um even at this point in time where like the satanic panic is starting to come in uh Mm -hmm. and and people are starting to be really concerned about um the presence of malicious spirits perhaps um i do appreciate that they take this moment to recognize like you said not everybody's immediately going to jump to call the exorcist um that's not that's not something that's necessarily ingrained in us uh in in our culture anymore to respond in in that way yeah for sure um so we kind of have these few opening shots that kind of introduce us to all the main players um so chris is kind of hearing all these things happening in the ceiling uh, she checks in on Reagan in the morning we meet the kind of house servants and like she talks to them then we see her on the job she's acting uh, we see her chatting with Burke and we see Father Caris like in the background uh, looking on um, just kind of loving life really he's just smiling and he's like oh this is so fun yeah completely oblivious and unaware of everything that's about to happen just despite all this wonderful foreshadowing we've just done uh completely lost on the people in the story as always um so yeah uh, there's all these little things that are like planted as well that shows that chris is like a massive star like reagan's reading a magazine at one point that's got her mom and her as well actually on the front cover um after these like initial opening shots when chris walks home and you hear the theme music which is totally iconic she's like oh i've got an invitation for dinner at the white house (laughs) right you've made it you've made it and then like we get these establishing shots as well of Chris and Reagan's relationship which are super cute like it gets across the message that they're really close um you know I definitely childhood's very different from the 70s to now but I feel like she very much treats Reagan like a little girl uh, rather than someone that's just like just about to be a teenager and what do you think about Chris and Reagan together I think um I I think it's interesting to cuz as you said like they do appear fairly close but we know that like Chris is kind of an absentee mother cuz she's working a lot and and I do think that shows in the way that she treats Reagan in the sense that like she's not quite aware she's not present for Reagan's growing up and so she sort of 
Reagan exists in this time capsule, perhaps, of staying in this one space um, as time flies away from her, as time uh, she doesn't quite catch up with time. And so she's not really present to see the development and to see what's happening here. Um, and so like when when Reagan starts to display, you know, that those those spooky violent tendencies, I think that's part of like why Chris freaks out a bit is well, freaks out a bit, freaks out a lot, <laughs> as you said, crumbles. Um, I think because not only is she facing uh she she's not only facing active harm for from her daughter but um she's also being confronted by this massive upheaval in in a thing that perhaps she hasn't spent much time with in recent days months weeks years yeah um it's like even like the little nickname that she gives her rags i'm like it cringes me out a little bit but i'm like i don't see a teenager wanting to be called rags you know that's I yeah. feel like that's like a little a little girl nickname I mean I had uh my my mom lovingly calls me banana rama um and she's <laughs> always called me she's always called me some uh abstraction of banana and when I went through my teenage years when I went through my middle school mom I'm too cool for you phase I absolutely was uh mom don't call me that and then and then I got back into adulthood and it swung back around and now it's like please by all means <laughs> identify <laughs> me identify me as your daughter identify us as as having this simpatico but no when you're going through that phase you're like uh <laughs> and no. especially a name like rags <laughs> i know like a little demeaning isn't it definitely so one of the things i like about this film is the way in which chris and reagan's story and father Caris's story are kind of told in tandem because they both go through the same lows and then obviously to the the climax of the film in which they both kind of get what they want out of it. Um, so we see Father Harris go to a really rough part of town to go and meet his mother. It's, you know, the place that she lives, not very nice. She seems to be yeah. in a lot of pain. She's, you know, she's quite old and she's got issues with her leg and he seems like absolutely racked with guilt over this and we kind of see later on like he's meant to be a very gifted psychiatrist and he gets a bit of ribbon from his uncle like your mother should be living a life of luxury in New York and but you became a priest um what yeah. what do we think of Father Caris? Oh I protect this man at all costs um <laughs> I don't care if that's problematic of me to say. Um, I I have a very soft spot for Father Karras. Um, I think his his whole purpose really is to be pitted against ideas of devotion and to what is that devotion placed. And so you know he gets he gets this chide of this is how you should have taken care of things. And this is what you decided to do instead. And this is kind of um, in the vein of like Chris dismissing the spiritual um, in, in favor of the secular. I think this is another sign of that where um, you have someone who 
degrade very clearly looks down on spiritual pursuits especially um to this extent um and and it clearly affects Karis deeply he takes on that guilt he takes on um he takes on that guilt to the point of wanting to give up the priesthood and and having such serious doubts in his faith in his religion in this church um he's a fascinating character very important i think to get into probably later when we wrap up the movie but for now let me just say uh i love him i don't care what that says about me (laughs) i love him yeah it's kind of hard not to like sympathize with him or empathize with him it kind of talks about you know all this depraved shit i hear it's making me lose my faith and you know all this stuff with his mum. like i can imagine he would feel guilty because that probably is in the back of his mind but i'm sure people who go into priesthood or any other kind of like religious leader they don't do these things lightly because you know you do it for the love of the religion the love of your god not to make money like that's not what yeah. it should be about at all um so yeah i kind of i kind of love it as well <laughs> he's great and well and and it's so hard to this idea of like when sometimes religion really does force you to choose like like i said before like where you're putting your devotion and one being a caregiver in general to an ailing uh member of your family is already very difficult emotional labor um but then being asked to choose between god um and you know which which carries the weight and magnitude of those who who believe in such a an entity um versus your family um very difficult very difficult position to be put in very tender definitely so um we go back to the house with chris and reagan and reagan reveals that she's been playing with a ouija board as someone with such a depth of knowledge of demons as yourself veil would you be fucking around with a ouija board in your (laughs) home (laughs) (laughs) oh um um and and here's one yes i'm a devout christian do i believe in this kind of thing happening Mm -hmm. just a bit just a bit um i i've been privy to some uh stories from friends and family members that have kind of made me go um but when it comes so when it comes to the ouija board um is kind of bonkers to know that like the satanic panic is happening and at the same time the ouija board is becoming like a common toy like it's just kind of a throwaway thing that people don't really think about until um and i don't have the time to go on this rant of capitalism and commercialism but like it essentially until like the ouija board becomes um this place where we fixate all of our anxiety and fear onto and i think what that does at that point is it takes it from you know regardless of what you actually believe in like what a ouija board is literally able to do and it foments and creates i think this mindset that like you i i believe very much in like the uh, human capacity to create what it sees and what it feels and so if you go into this expectation that you're going to have a wonky time with this ouija board you're going to have a wonky time um human body human mind human eyes plays tricks on you all the time um and also uh 
as someone who believes in this, if you're going into this believing that's going to happen, you're going to call something to you. You're going to call something to you. I don't know what it is, but you are going to get its attention. So just don't do it, maybe. (laughs) I'm not doing it. I'm I'm not doing it. I'm not messing with that. I no, wouldn't no. do it either. I don't, like I don't need that. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need, need that. I, that's a question I don't need answered. Like that's oh, fine. No. I already have anxiety. I don't need anything else living in my brain. <laughs> no, thank you. So Reagan reveals that she's been talking to somebody called Captain Hyde using the Ouija board. Um, how do you feel about that nickname? Just real quick. How do you feel about the nickname Captain Howdy? It's it's a bit like weird. Just it? it sounds like you know like a kids tv presenter on a show or a character from like like a tv a kids tv show it it's the weirdest little sliver piece i like fixate it fixate on it like all the time of just like if you're this magnificent demon you're gonna go in with the name captain howdy i know Actually, I have some thoughts about that, about demons picking their own names. But again, we'll get there if we ever get there. But <laughs> Captain Howdy, very interesting choice for Pazuzu. <laughs> um, so later that night, uh, Burke phones Chris randomly in the middle of the night being like, we need to do scene 61. And she looks yeah, over. That yeah, I know. And she looks over and Megan's and in her bed and she's like, "What are you, like? What are you doing in here?" And she says, "Reagan says her bed was shaking," which sounds like so inconsequential at this point in the film. You're just like, "All right." And then Chris leaves the room again and hears the noises from the attic. Um, but this time she actually goes and investigates with a candle. It's very, you know, Victorian Gothic. Yeah, very. <laughs> <laughs> and then Carol, one of the Scottish people can't say Carl. We say Carol. <laughs> uh, so Carol. did great. <laughs> Carol scares her and he's like, look, I told you there's no rats in here. Um, what do what do you think of these bits? Because this is more like subtle little sprinklings of the fact that Reagan is possessed. I think it's I think it's one of those moments where we're one in a horror movie we have to build tension, right? We have to build tension and be in order to sustain tension to an effective point, you have to break it. Um and so you kind of have to have those it could be a demon or it could be a rat. Um it, it could be someone else messing with some things. You you kind of need that like trip up moment to kind of ease yourself even though we all know what it is we all know what it's eventually going to turn into um there is still that like but what if this time but what if um but it also i think reinforces this idea that like there's a secular explanation for everything and people will look to that first um i think it's very interesting that chris like ultimately eventually goes to priests not being a particularly spiritual woman it does remind me of the concept of like there's no atheist in a foxhole right that kind of that kind of type thing and so i think this these sorts of moments these slices kind of stand in to provide that sort of vague what kind of fuckery is this um and then to be able to have a couple secular 
explanations for it to then drive Chris so that like when she does ultimately go to the priests for help when she's at her wits end it um returning to spirituality is an act of desperation but also in a way an act of an actual act of faith I think so in the next scene Regan is at the doctor's and I think here you can really see I love the analysis of the exorcist as um like fears around female puberty and there's mm-hmm. like a few horror films that have done that and you can yeah. kind of see like the hormonal teenager in these scenes because she is so irritable she's so erratic she does not want these people touching her and you kind of see that like hormonal in quotes monster kind of coming yeah. out here and then when the doctors are like she was like Santa Cruz, she was swearing at me. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's such certainly by today's standard, very typical like teenage behavior. It really is. Um it's it's interesting because this um so good friend William, writer William, um he got all of his like information about um what possessions look like from a book called possession um by tk ostrich and um ostrich gets all of his information essentially from um a case of possessions that happened in 1647 um and it cataloged all of these symptoms that we now know today um and one of them is swearing it is reacting violently um we know we we know this and it's it's very interesting always to compare cases of demonic possession with um mental disorders and other biological abnormalities um or just hormonal imbalances and fluctuations and uh when you go through puberty and you have those really overwhelming moments and you don't quite know how to behave anymore um i I think it's a very interesting intersection between uh one we expect puberty to do things to our teenagers hopefully um uh, well hopefully we expect that our teenagers can act quote-unquote irrationally and and are prepared to deal with that lovingly two we know to expect certain symptoms from mental disorders and seek a real viable option of treatment for that. And then three, the metaphysical cosmological idea that something is literally possessing you to do this, to change and warp your personality this way. Um, Very intense, very intense, very sticky intersection. Yeah. Like, yeah, like when people talk about their teenagers or like reflect on teenage years, like they do kind of use that word. It's like it's like something possessed them for five years, and it's yeah, it's so interesting. Um, yeah, it's during this scene as well. I was like, I was watching it, and I was like, oh, I really like that. You know, as much as they're talking about puberty, they don't really sexualize Rick. And then I was like, there's so much sex stuff yeah. in this, Lindsay. <laughs> it went right over my head. And it's like, <laughs> even in this, this scene, she's like, don't touch my cunt or something. Yeah. And yeah. part of it was like, I think I was kind of like, good, because men are creeps. And she should tell him that because you never right. know. 
it's uh it's it's a another very fun interesting intersection of like feminism and putting on women putting on or otherwise adapting appropriating being possessed by the other as a form of subversion from uh, male-dominated arenas, essentially. Um, and so you kind of have this moment where you're like, mm, it's not good to be possessed, but also you tell him, you tell him. Yeah. <laughs> like, absolutely, maintain your autonomy. Uh, <laughs> and we see that sort of motif, I think, happen a lot, especially in horror. But um, that kind of idea is very pervasive of um, sometimes... I guess you you want this metaphysical power to give you extra oomph when you're being put in a position where somebody has authority over you and you desperately want to overthrow that in some way, shape, or form. What? Because um, in other horror films, you know, like Ginger Snaps is coming to mind and yeah. Teeth, they're a bit older. Yeah. So you kind of not understand but you can see them going from girl to woman per mm -hmm. se so i kind of understand the portrayal of the fears around female sexuality there reagan as much as she's 12 and on the cusp of teenagehood she's still a child really and yeah. um, like what do you think about the that use of like fears of female sexuality being used in this context because like on the other side of the coin, you hear so much about women's experiences of being catcalled and they're often when they were much too young to even know why they were being catcalled in the first place. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that she is very like violently sexual in her possession. I don't even want to say it's Reagan. It's like the demon's very violently sexual in using Reagan's body. Um, like, what do you think about that? I think um, you can take this two ways, right? Where you can take it in the context that the Exorcist novel and movie were created, right? You can put it in the context of the 1970s where women's sexuality was incredibly policed. It was incredibly taboo. It's always been taboo. Okay, female sexuality has always been taboo. Um, but you can view it as the creators are trying to come up with like the most evil thing that you could possibly portray uh so clearly that's women's sexuality um and you can also take a look at um using using sexual violence um on a young girl to again convince an audience um that this thing is evil I think that's where they're going. I think, or at least that's where I very much want to go. Uh, me personally, I I want to um, and I want to believe in that interpretation because I want to. I guess I have a lot of issues with making Reagan a, a feminist icon uh, because of the pain that she goes through, and we don't really want to like we don't want to put that on women and we definitely don't want to put that on girls. And so Reagan being in the position that she's in, I don't want to view and people can argue with me. People can have their opinions about it, but I personally don't want to view this as a woman coming into her sexuality because that paints it in such a vile picture. Um, I, I choose to interpret it as um, the, the sanctity of something that shouldn't be taboo 
becoming very taboo and being very foreign um, and being very uh, hard to grapple and deal with and um, other social contexts surrounding that also making it very sticky, very uncomfortable, very foreign for um, for someone to interact with and in concepts of purity absolutely get tangled up in, and involved in that. But I don't, I don't perceive this uh, as uh, a sexual awakening. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't think it's like that at all. <laughs> I think no. if you want to look for a sexual awakening, we can find other things. <laughs> we can find many other things. Definitely. <laughs> Let's not do it with this one. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so move on again and Chris is hosting a party uh, oh. I absolutely love the dress she wears in this I don't know why oh, I was yeah. watching it I was like oh you look fab um, so it's mentioned at the party among the people speaking that Candice's mother has passed away and we kind of intermittently throughout various scenes kind of see him turn to the ball it's really like really very sad um, yeah Burke is going around being an absolute menace, like winding up one of these oh. guests, or is it a server being like, you're a Nazi? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I don't know what the point of the antagonism is. Like, we already, like, I don't know. Maybe it's just to prime the audience to be uncomfortable with what happens next, but <sighs> yeah. Um, I you am know, not Burke's biggest fan. Let me just say that. I am no. not Denning's biggest fan. He's like he is a menace. Like he's an absolute menace. Absolute menace. <laughs> um so you know the the night's kind of winding down. There's a few stragglers. They're having a you know a little bit of drunken singing around the piano, and then Reagan makes an appearance and she says, You're gonna die up there. And then she like wets herself mm -hmm. um, she seems quite catatonic while she's doing it it's definitely not kind of Reagan behavior that even though we the audience aren't really that familiar with her it doesn't seem like Reagan behavior from what we've seen earlier in the film and it definitely shocks Chris uh, who immediately takes her upstairs uh, bathes her puts her back to bed and then when she leaves the room, the bed starts to shake. And this is the first time that, like, Chris can be like, I've seen something strange. It's not just like, oh, I think there's rats in the yeah. ceiling. Like, this is not normal. Like, this yeah. is not normal behaviour of a bed, is it? <laughs> this is not what beds are supposed to do. No. This is not, no. <laughs> um, My bed doesn't do that. No. 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 <laughs> No. Um what do what do we think of this scene? You know, it's quite iconic, the kind of catatonic vegan coming down the stairs being like, You're gonna die up there. I I I think it's um it's a way to level up the stakes, I think. Um I and I also feel like it's uh it's another foreshadowing. It's another uh portent. Uh, of things to come and I also think it centers um the danger it's it's all upstairs it's not all around us it's the central action is going to happen upstairs 
And it sort of places that threat kind of back in Reagan's room, not just in Reagan's body, but in Reagan's room. Mm. Which I think yeah. is interesting. Um, so we're back at the doctors with Reagan. The doctors are absolutely convinced that there's a lesion in her temporal lobe and like the frontal part of the brain responsible for personality and they want to go for a brain scan was it just me or was this brain scanner like absolutely terrifying oh i think they went way above and beyond like i i've I've never gotten a brain scan (laughs) um but i just really the the choice is being made like (laughs) you have to i like to think that there was some scientist some mechanic building this machine that was like i could be normal about this or what if what if we were unreasonably spooky about it (laughs) that would be a fun little treat who wouldn't love that so there's just some whack mechanic out there who's like no i'll build you a brain scan but i am gonna put my own flavor on it like that's the only explanation (laughs) for why this thing looks this way i don't know let me ask my dad he's a doctor (laughs) (laughs) why would anyone make it that creepy nah it's for the aesthetic yeah no i agree like the Doctors are already anxiety-adjacent enough. Let's just, like, ramp it up to 100. Yeah. Make it spooky. Make everything spooky. Make everything spooky. Um, so the results reveal nothing. Chris and Reagan go back home. But later on, uh, Chris phones the doctors. They're like, you need to come immediately. And this is another iconic scene. They come up the stairs, Reagan screaming, and it's when she's being like flipped up and down oh, on the yeah. bed. And well, like, Linda Blair got a back injury from this. Yeah, like I think it was meant to be like sustained. other supports or something that broke, and she was proper getting flung about. It was not yeah. fun not for great. her. And great. it's also just like so unnerving to watch because you just bodies don't really move mm. that way no they're not supposed to definitely uh this is and and this is actually one of my favorite instances of body horror that i feel like goes largely uh un unused i don't know maybe maybe underutilized because especially as we get into it like as as we get in further into the movie right they like really amp up the practical effects of like the visuals of Mm. what her face looks like and they really contort her but I love, and, and I don't know, this is the theater practitioner coming out in me, but I love a weird body in a space doing weird shit. <laughs> Boy, howdy. Uh, I, I, I love that. I think there's something really powerful um, about seeing a body that has not visually uh, morphed quite yet, but is capable of doing something like that. I think it really speaks to the, um, how inner this thing is that it's it's not just a a a cosmetic change but it's like musculature it's Mm. in the marrow i think that's that to me um is potentially freakier than anything that happens on our face or skin definitely um she also starts to speak in a different voice in this scene as well and this is when we get like the deep growly um demon voice um, it frustrates me. I say to this day as if I was alive at the time. It frustrates me that Linda Blair kind of fell out of favor for the best supporting actress when they were like, "Oh, you you didn't do that voice. Do you know how hard lip syncing is?" Like, yeah. And I'm just like, you 
assholes. Like she should have won that. I don't even know who else is nominated, but she should have won that. And I, I think I that agree. was a bad reason to take it away from her. Yeah, no, it's it, and I think any actor will tell you it's not always in the voice. It shouldn't always be in the voice. Exactly ridiculous reason. Um. So yeah, we hear the demon's voice. Um. The demon gives one of the doctors a right good smack in the face and um, the nanny is kind of like bringing Chris out the room because she's just distraught and the doctors heavily sedate her. Um, At this point, the doctors are still like, it's the temporal lobe and Chris is kind of like, come off it. Like, it's not her temporal lobe. Like, there's something else going on. Um, They do another scan and it's normal again. And at this point, they're like, you you need to see a psychiatrist. Well, yeah. Reagan needs to see a psychiatrist. Um, oh, no. Chris is going to need to see somebody after this. Oh, sure. yeah. <laughs> for sure. Everybody involved. Like, definitely. Everybody's going to need. We're going to need um, something. As much as I kind of, I do take issue with Chrissy's character, I feel like Ellen Bernstein portrays the frustration of someone looking for a diagnosis because I kind of try and put myself in her shoes like this is aggravating this is so frustrating and to feel so like powerless as well there's nothing she can do to do to fix it her daughter's going through this thing nobody can tell her what nobody can tell her how to fix it and I think Ellen Bernstein like portrays the frustration of that really really well I would completely agree with you that's such a heart-rending position to put a mother in um it's the worst kind of pain I think I'm not a mom um but I have a mom and uh and she loves me and she loves my brothers and I I I watch her go through that tumult I mean none of us have been possessed but we've all gone through puberty um and and watching her just really kind of like have to suffer from afar and try and figure out how to be a good nurturing parent while wanting desperately to fix your child is and not always knowing what and just trying to throw so many things at the at the problem it's it's possession might not be a common thing but uh certainly a, a mom trying to look out for her kid is and and i think that's really um a, again a lot of pathos comes from from chris and and seeking this and i think it's it um when you see that frustration and desperation how can you blame her like even the most hardcore atheist how could you blame her for then turning to the last place that she can go right yes perfect motivation so we move on again um Chris is driving home from somewhere, not really sure where, and on the way home, you see a lot of, like, commotion, there's some police cars, there's, like, a crowd, it is kind of, like, blinking, you miss it, like, if you're not paying attention, that will go oh, yeah. right by you, um, but she comes in, the lights keep flickering, Pazuzu just having, playing some games again, she was behaving. <laughs> she goes to check on Reagan and the window's wide open and there's also no one else in the house which is really strange the nanny comes home and Chris is like giving her a right telling off like right. why did you leave my child on her own and she's like I didn't Burke was here how would it be like my child with Burke like 
Like, no. it probably would have been drunk. Like, it's a bit all over the shop. Like, no. I wouldn't be leaving my child alone with Bark. Um, but, yeah, they just think that Bark's burned off because he's not very reliable anyway. And then someone passing by the house who knows Chris kind of knocks on the door and is like, oh, I assume you've heard Burke's passed away. And with everything else going on, like, Chris is absolutely distraught at this. Yeah. Um, and then Reagan descends the staircase um, in, like, a bridge position from yoga. Yeah, and there's casual yoga. And there's, like, blood yeah. pouring out of her mouth. Um, so yeah, like Pazuzu obviously was like, I'm being ignored. Like, right. I need a bit of attention right now, so I'm just <laughs> gonna do some acrobatics down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had known that that would have gotten me attention in puberty. I think I would have done a lot more of that rather than um, I don't know what what did I get up to when I was a teenager? I've blanked so much of that from my mind. <laughs> I I wish I knew that just if I could just like crunch down on a blood capsule and do some weird yoga in front of my mom like that would have gotten me what I wanted whatever okay that's fine that's fine I'll remember it now for the next family reunion yeah <laughs> I guess uh-huh. incite some terror there why not I said that one in my 30s and I'm gonna do myself some real damage <laughs> <laughs> me too I don't have a, a, a habitual enough yoga practice for me to be able to sustain that I think I'd like just fall over and I would just really look kind of sad <laughs> it's not a bit I think my body's willing to commit to right now <laughs> but it's nice to dream about yeah definitely we always dream of being you know the green tea yoga bitches but it's just, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just not gonna happen it's not gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> So um, Reagan has been seen again by a doctor at home. I think this is one of the first times we I see like some noticeable changes in her face, and she's looking really tired. A bit yeah. don't want to call a twelve year old haggard, but she looks a bit haggard. Oh. And um... how would you describe someone who's been possessed by a demon, if not for haggard? <laughs> <laughs> what other descriptors can we find for that? This is true. Like, he's really just, like, sucking the life out of her. Like, that's what she looks like in these moments, like, before the kind of, she like, the decay kind of starts to happen later on in the film. He just looks like he's sucking the life out of her. Oh, yeah. So, this is when the psychiatrist comes to see her, sorry, and he's asking her about other people inside her, because they kind of have this running theory that she might have some kind of, like, at the time, it would have been known as split personality disorder. I think nowadays right. it's DID. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person, the demon rather, like just like growls at him and just like grabs him. I think it, like by the genitals and just tries to hurt him. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't blame her to be honest. Neither do I. <laughs> again it's it's another one of those weird moments where you're just like no we shouldn't harm people um but you know uh, do what you gotta do girl (laughs) 
And, well, I, I think I think this is why, you know, so often we see in horror in life, we see women putting on the other like this. We see them go for these drastic subversions in, in personality and in femininity in humanity um, just to try and gain the upper hand in some way, shape or form. Um, mm. I, I think that speaks to that deep sadness of of being feminine uh, mm. in you know in in whatever identifying way that is it's it's very hard to be in that body it's very hard to be in that body yes um so, so we go back to a scene with father caris we've not spoken about him for a hot minute and oh, um my friend <laughs> while he's doing That's some laps and um, this detective approaches him and he has some what could be considered outlandish theories about Burke's death and he starts to question Karis about witchcraft he reveals that Burke's head did a 180 on the fall and that he thinks that the person who killed Burke and vandalised the Virgin Mary statue in the church are the same person um Candace isn't really having it at all. And you kind of yeah. see this later on when he starts to get questioned about the exorcist, like doing an exorcism. He's like, that's that just doesn't happen nowadays. Like, that's not been done yeah. for about 400 years. Like, no, like, we're not doing that. And he's kind of right. very similar about witchcraft. He's mm-hmm. like, like, dark magic's not a thing. Like, we're not doing this. Um, right. What do you think about Caris's reaction to this um I don't want to speak for my Catholic friends but as I understand it like the protocol for calling in an exorcism is fairly stringent um mm-hmm. as I understand it please if a Catholic listener wants to tell me more about this I would very much love to know about this I've been intending on on calling some Catholic friends to find more about this so please um But I think one, it again speaks to this secular spiritual divide where you even have somebody of the cloth who does not want to, again, there's this hesitation to turn to God, to turn to this godly divinity and power. Um, There's that strange aversion to it, I think, that comes from someone in the clergy but also it does speak to um the cultural mindset where we see something like this happen and we do turn to science we don't immediately go for um well that that's a possession um in fact actually it was very um i i came across this weird article as i was doing my research where there was a psychologist and this happened like in the 2000s there was a psychologist who straight up tried to make this argument that like maybe we need to be treating these personality disorders as possessions <laughs> and i remember i know i remember reading this and being like dude i don't think so i don't think that's right um but there is i think space for that when you come up with someone um when, when you come up to someone who is deeply ingrained and entrenched in that spiritual practice, who is going to, you know, rather than put medicine and science and secularism first, they're going to put God first. Um, Not going to knock on that, not going to 
devotion if that brings you peace is a very beautiful thing um but i think i think it speaks to um father Karras's character in this moment that there's still that aversion of he's he might be trained to know what to do in this situation um and to recognize the hallmarks and calling cards of what could be termed as possession what the catholic church considers and catalogs as possession um and is trying to devalue that i think in some way shape and form um when people try to also devalue the devil i think they're also in some way shape or form lessening the power of god where Mm -hmm. if like the devil is not that powerful then you don't need god that much and i think that might that that might be a bit where father karis is coming from my two lincolns on that my two lincolns (laughs) um I think it was it's interesting in this film as well like you said and it doesn't come across that way in this film either it seems like it was really difficult to get an exorcism like the way he's saying it's just like this is not something that you do easily um it seems really difficult and I find it interesting because I'm thinking about the Conjuring franchise and like I know you should probably take those with a pinch of salt, but like Ed Warren like does an exorcism at some point. He's not even a priest. He's just a guy. He's just a guy. He's just a guy. He's a little guy. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, and, and it's actually interesting. I think a lot of people have this perception of, you know, way back when the church ran the state, right? Um, in, in this early modern time period, that possessions were something that you did. There's actually a lot of records of um early modern priests and doctors agreeing that you have to approach cases like this from both standpoints mm-hmm. that it was both a psychological as well as spiritual um effort and so they there even was this uh, slight reticence of immediately going to this is a demon um and and trying to back it up and solve uh the physical ailment of it and and treating a human uh as a human and not just a vessel for malicious spirits so there there is that protocol and it is fairly long-standing of um when you address and diagnose something as a possession um there's not this uh not everyone uh and i think especially the catholic church not everyone wants to immediately go that that there's a demon get it uh (laughs) even if you do believe in god and even if you do believe in that kind of thing i think uh, people just don't inherently go ah yeah power of christ (laughs) um so next scene we are at a special facility with reagan and there seems to be like a whole like group of doctors there must be like 20 or something of them trying to diagnose what is wrong with reagan they they're just like we could put her in an asylum and chris is not having that uh don't blame her um And then when they've kind of exhausted all options, one of them's like, well, you could try an exorcism. You could try the- <laughs> when, like, Which, I don't know, obviously we're watching a film called The Exorcist. It's like, it sounds so outlandish. Like when a doctor, yeah. someone who studied for best part of a decade in medicine is like, exorcism? 
it's really hard it's really hard for um i i think basically uh any time after the enlightenment right i think i think it's hard for humans to readily seek the metaphysical answers um we've just been kind of talking about that in terms of protocol um but also in terms of just like there's something really weird about science handing the torch over to mysticism yeah it's very uncomfortable and i think in a way like it almost feels irresponsible where you're just sort of like i wash my hands of this weirdness put her in an asylum or call a priest those are your only two options and it kind of like no you should be better at your job (laughs) what'd you go to all that school for what is that student debt for if you can't solve this exactly yeah and one thing i'll never get over watching older films as well is seeing doctors and like in crime films as well like detectives and like the when they're doing the postmortem and they're just having a sick like left right yeah. and center and i'm like what are you doing it, like, it, it never fails of- to shock me <laughs> yeah for, it reminds me of that john mulaney bit where he's talking about like old detectives and he's like oh there's blood all over everywhere gross mop it up <laughs> contaminating so many things dude this is not how it should be done uh, exactly <laughs> so the detective is kind of like having a nosy round Burke's uh, death site again and he finds this like stone carving uh, yeah. which looks very similar to the carvings that we saw at the very start of the film and then he looks up and he sees Reagan's bedroom window so he goes to the house that kind of is joins on to that, which is obviously Chrissy's house, and asks her questions about when Burke died. And his kind of hypothesis is that Burke was pushed from that window. Obviously, Chris is not wanting to reveal what's going on with Reagan, so she's just trying to get rid of this guy as quickly as possible. Fair enough. And then... Pazuzu, as soon as the detective leaves, starts like tearing Vega's room to pieces. There's all this stuff flying oh, yeah. all over the place. And then we walk, like Chris walks in, and the demon is masturbating Vega's body with a crucifix. Oh, yeah. It's not great. It's not. Uh, it, essentially, the most shocking. Uh, I have a tough time. I have a tough time with it every time it shows up. It's just like, oh, on so many levels. It's so fucked. And then the demon brings Chrissy's face to Reagan's genitals. So Reagan's, uh, Chrissy's face, rather, is completely covered in blood as well. Yeah. And uh, then Reagan's head does a 180. And. The demon blocks the door with a chair. I think the nanny's like running to try and do something. And uh, yeah, like Susan's just been like absolute riot. You're you're right. This scene is like so shocking. It's kind of one of those ones I was like, kind of like couldn't fully watch. I kind of like turned my face away from the screen and was just kind of giving like cautionary glances because obviously I needed to know for right. this but I'm just like oh like it's such a hard watch and it's all the blood as well like yeah Ugh. it's yeah very clearly um invasive and wrong on so many levels yeah um 
I think, you know, again, even staunch atheists, the the symbol of a crucifix and the symbol of Christ um uh ha- I feel like every word at my disposal is is just going to be an extreme understatement. It's incredibly unnerving to see mm. sacred symbols like that. Um where we know what that means, we know what that signifies whether or not we practice Christianity. Um to be used in that way in such a violent way as well is just uh, ha, 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 make anybody sick. Yeah, kind of like violent and sexualized way against a child. It's just, uh-huh. it's just a trifecta of absolute vileness. Yeah, yeah. So, I think Chris is kind of like giving into the fact that we need to take an alternative route now. The medical route's not working, so she like, tries to meet Father Caris to discuss an exorcism and here he's kind of he's very against it at the start he's like I'm a trained psychiatrist like can I please speak to her like we don't yeah. dish out exorcisms lightly so he's he's quite set on the fact that he's gonna get to the bottom of what's going on so they arrive at the house and Caris goes into the room alone and Reagan's been strapped to the bed and she now has a feeding tube and we get like a first look at like decaying Reagan. Yeah. And oh, it's so horrible, like what this demon's done to her. Yeah. There's a true horror in that I don't think gets touched on enough um, with this idea of a disempowered mm. body um i'm gonna say like dispossessed not not dispossessed in that you know the demon is vacated but dispossessed in that reagan has vacated um having your bodily autonomy taken from you like that um absolutely horrendous absolutely horrendous and i don't think it's very difficult at all to see the parallels especially from father karis's eyes of walking in on reagan like this to walking in on his mom like that mm. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I kind of, I tried to when I was making my notes as well, like very much refer to all of this as the demon because it's not Reagan. Um, And I think that's a thing as well when people do the analysis of this as like puberty and obviously there's like the kind of violently sexual aspect to it all as well. None of it's horror. And then we see at the end, yeah. she doesn't even, she has no recollection of this either. So none of it's horror, it's all Kazuzu. So I guess in that way, it's like, yeah, it's dispossessed because we're not talking about Reagan anymore. She's just like a vessel, essentially. Yeah. And it's very hard to see a small child, a small girl in that role. Um, and that's, a, I don't know, circling back, that's another reason why I don't necessarily view this as um, a story about puberty. Absolutely, you can read it that way. And and by all means, write all the papers about that. This is just me personally. It, it, how can it be about Reagan when Reagan's not in her body? Yeah this this at this point becomes to me maybe like prior to this moment yeah it's absolutely you can read it that way it's a metaphor please do um but for me i think at this point like 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 we've been saying reagan's not there 
this is barely Reagan's body. This is, we are dealing with Pazuzu now. Um, that's my, again, that's my two Lincolns. I, I can already feel a plethora of people trying to argue with me about this and and by all means do. <laughs> Um, but for me personally, I, I think if you're going to have a story about puberty, ginger snaps, carry, mm. um, do that, go that, go in that direction. <laughs> this to me is, a a slightly different story. So when Caris is like talking to the demon and like Meriden kind of touches on this later, like the, I, the demons always wants to kind of like converse with you. And he 100% is trying to get a rise out of Karis by talking about his recently deceased mother. And Karis kind of tries to, like, play back. And he's like, okay, then, what's my mum's maiden name? And the demon just vomits right in his face. Um, I believe this was an error. I don't think in the actual film that the, the vomit was meant to go on a Jason... Is it Jason Miller's face? Um, oh, it was meant really? to go in the chest, yeah. So he was pissed after this, which I don't blame him. Like I wouldn't want all that no. gunk in my on my face, in my mouth, up my nose. No, no, no thanks, no thanks. <laughs> I mean, we we know that there's a history of really problematic directors pulling janky shit with their actors. Um, I don't approve of that as a director. Don't do that to your actors. That's a violation of boundaries and safety, and don't do it. Uh. It, that is not informed consent, which means it's a crime. But boy, what a shot. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. At the end of the what a shot. What a shot. Uh, <laughs> don't do that to your actors. What a shot. Um, so even after this, Candace is, you know, still saying to Chris, like, I think we should maybe put her in a facility, like six months in a facility. I think that would do her some good. But Chris is like, no, we're doing an exorcism. <laughs> Yeah, Canis like kind of goes back to see the demon again. Pazuzu's thrilled at the idea of an exorcism. That's what I got. He he's absolutely buzzing. And um Karis, like starts spraying holy water on him and he's you know he's writhing around in pain. Uh Karis reveals that this like isn't actually holy water to Chris and it like her kind of chances of getting an exorcism like aren't going in her favor mm-hmm. but he's like really determined to help these two so he's kind of like obsessively listening to the tapes and I think someone's someone says to him like oh it's English backwards so he starts to listen to them backwards and you can hear um you can hear like the demon you can kind of hear Reagan being like get me out of here um there's loads of stuff going on and this finally convinces Karis to start seeking approval for an exorcism. Yeah, and that's when we circle back to um, Marin um, from the beginning. Uh, he shows up. Um, nice to see you again, sir. Yeah, so a letter sent for him and he arrives and, you know, you get the iconic shot of him just standing outside the building one thing that kind of like gives me the giggles in this film is when it's like literally as soon as he steps foot in it because he's like Marin! like they're old lovers or something <laughs> i know <laughs> like hey what's up but there are um there are accounts several priests have written that like when they've gone to do exorcisms they've been recognized 
And that demon has been like, yo, what's up? We're here again. Wow. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. There are some accounts like that, which I think is just no, no, no. <laughs> that if that happened, if I walked into a room and that happened, I'd be like, oh, you're going to call somebody else. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not being I'm not involved in this anymore. Sorry. Excuse me. No. Bye. I have no business being here. <laughs> I don't know. Meren is kind of interesting in this film. I feel like we get little bit teasers of who he is, and um, but we never really get to know him. And yeah, well, and he, then you know, spoiler alert, he dies. In his yeah, uh, <laughs> so he just kind of shows up as like a pseudo Deus Ex Machina. Like he doesn't even get to be the Deus Ex Machina because he dies. But he kind of fulfills that where he just shows up and he's like, this is what we're going to do. Um, and now I'm out. <laughs> uh, what a guy. He shows up at the beginning and he's like, oh, no. Wickedness. It's everywhere. Uh, and he comes back here to die. Just, Interesting art for Father Marin. Yeah. Um, I feel like he's so like stereotypically like boomer as well when he walks in and Caris is like all right I'll I'll give you the background about what's going on he's like nope I know everything (laughs) yeah I don't need it it doesn't matter (laughs) nothing matters Caris is like oh I think there's three of them there's only one I'm sorry there's only one (laughs) it's like how do you know that you haven't been here (laughs) you don't know that uh I think I think there's something in that that speaks to so you get like this polarity right where you get the secularism that's like we should be able to solve anything oh wait we can't um and then you get uh the opposite of that where it's I can solve anything. Don't worry about it. I got the power of God with me. It doesn't matter. Um, and and there's almost this um treating of Reagan less as a person and less as a patient and more of a specimen, even where when you get into that kind of uh where Marin is just like, I'm just here to do battle with the demon. And it's kind of upsetting to see the I mean, and we kind of already said this, like it's the story is not uh, necessarily about Reagan anymore because of uh, Pazuzu's total takeover. But I think there is something to be said for if you're going to deal with something like that, like there's a human in there. We hope. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) really. The point of this is to restore the human, not always to cast out the devil. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes in other exorcism movies um because i feel like the the amount of exorcism films there are would make you believe that it is just like a default thing that is done in catholicism and it's not like you you get the impression in this film that it's not it's very special circumstances but yeah other kind of depictions of exorcisms you don't always feel like they're trying to save the person possessed they just want rid of the demon and yeah it shouldn't be like that it should be about protecting the person that's 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 what that that's what i think that's what i think i think there's always something to be said for the idea that like when if you're dealing with a demon get in get out absolutely like why would you put yourself in a position where you could be harmed 
like this kind of type thing what's the point in in dealing with the devil in, in this way what's the point of sitting around and having a conversation um but at the same time where's the empathy mm. where's the point in being a christ type which essentially priests are um sorry excuse me for that little reminder um what's the point in representing christ if you can't also bring in the empathy that he was yeah. sort of known for like that was sort of Jesus' thing right yeah <laughs> being pretty empathetic so what's what's the point in just showing up and being like cracks knuckles leave let's let's get this done and over with without recognizing yeah and like Merrin and Karis are like at the two ends of the spectrum he's mm -hmm. like Merrin's just there to catch up with I don't know his ex-boyfriend <laughs> to help Chris and Reagan. I'm gonna read this as divorce mediation from now on. The scene is just divorce <laughs> mediation. Just like you said I was going to get the body of the child. Why are we fighting about this again? That's horrible. And I hate that I said that, but that's how I'm gonna read the scene from now on. <laughs> So one of the things that Meryn says is like, do not engage in conversation with this demon. And this demon is so mean to Father Caris, constantly yeah. talking about his dead mom and see when the voice starts to emulate the dead mother. Like, oh, please, Demi, please. Oh, it breaks my heart. Like, that's so cruel. It's so hard. And uh, I think I think there's something um forgive the pun insidious about um this demon recognizing like a hey, Marin we've been through this before move out of the way let me focus on the weak link in the room yeah that's terrifying that absolutely is terrifying when a, a monster can smell the fear and where it comes from um I I think we see this kind of have you guys talked about the ritual at all no um highly recommend it fantastic movie love 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 it um but it, it reminds me of this moment where like i was watching the ritual with my best friend and we were talking about it and um there's this point where they uh they kill off a certain character and i thought you know why 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 you know i'm having my emotional reaction to that and my friend turns to me and was like the brave don't make good worshipers and that's how this makes me feel is just sort of like if if Pazuzu is here to gain whatever ground um he can from God, what's the point in fighting Marin? Yeah. It's all about Karis. So I think this scene as well is so because we're kind of like, oh yeah, Marin dies. And it does just kind of feel like that. It's like, oh, you're dead. Like because it is yeah. all about Karis and I feel like he you know throughout the film he's doubting his faith and I feel like this is when he kind of believes again like he's kind of got his I, I want to say his humanity back I feel like he's always had that but it's like he I think Chris and Reagan and their case and trying to help Reagan gives him purpose again I, I feel like what yeah. he was doing before he didn't feel like he has any purpose so in yeah. like taking on Pazuzu and then like taking his own life by going out the window he has purpose again and you know his his priest friend Father Dyer you know does the last rites with him and 
you know, it's it's you know, he can only communicate through like movement in his hand, but it's very it's very emotional and it's oh, yeah. it's a nice like full circle moment for him. Just to kind of he, he I feel like he's dying at peace. I I would agree with that as well. Um, and and I think um both Williams, writer and director, would uh back you up with with their motifery here. Um, because what you have essentially is. I, I think that this is exactly the way that Karis's arc needs to have gone, right? Is because where Marin failed, right, is Marin didn't have that empathy, um, died biologically, whatever, was was taken out of the game because of that. Um, and and exactly what we've been talking about, what's the point in representing Christ in this situation if you can't go in it with the empathy of it? And for Karis, then at this point is overcome with that empathy and with this desperate need to save this girl. It's not a desperate need necessarily to get the demon out as much as it is to restore Reagan. And and with that, with that purity of purpose back in place, he makes the Christ-like sacrifice, right? Like no greater love hath, hath man than this, that he gives his own life. And that's exactly what Karis does. And I find that to be, um, you know, a, an excellent turnaround, not just in in terms of like faith and doubt that he was willing to perform the sacrifice, that he was willing to be a part of this, that he was willing to take on sin, take on evil and die for it um, so that Reagan could live again. Um, but he has his chance at redemption for not being there for his mom, right, as his uncle getting after him for essentially choosing God over a family member he kind of has this moment to do both essentially um and he sacrifices himself in the process of it make of that what you will but he has the opportunity to give of himself perhaps the way that people think that he should have done uh with his mom but he gets the opportunity to still show a devotion to God, a faith, a trust, a, an ultimate act of faith and sacrifice um, to save a human. Fantastic arc. Fantastic arc. I can't get enough of this. I honestly, I really think I just mm, chef's kiss is perfect. <laughs> I love it. It's spooky. It's terrifying. It's horrible. It's like really heart rendering. But at the same time, like when you put it on paper like that, it's like, well, how else was this going to end for yeah. Father Karras? Exactly. And, you know, like the film's called The Exorcist. It's kind of his film. It's It's about him. It's about his redemption arc. It's about him helping Chris and Reagan and yeah I think it's a beautiful ending for him like and yeah you're right it's like the only way it really could have gone because if he left the church I feel like that would be weird like I think he kind of had to like sacrifice himself like that so I think so and 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 you kind of get that idea um because of Father Karras's association with St. Joseph, right? As he's got that medallion the whole time. Yeah. St. Joseph, as I understand it, is the patron saint of the Universal Church. But because um, God trusted him to watch after the Virgin Mary and his his son, um, he's also the patron saint of defending and protecting. Yeah. And so have 
you have that saint motifery following father Karras, that that is his role in the whole thing is to protect and defend yeah i agree um that is some like really nice imagery that would like bring it back to saints in the church so in the aftermath of it all chris decides to leave the house for obvious reasons you can just see that her and the other house servants they are so traumatized they're so worn out by the events of the last i'm not even sure how long this film goes on for is it like a few months or weeks? yeah something like that i don't know how long do films usually take well, this one took way too long, actually. The filming of this one was had everybody saying it it's cursed. Uh, yeah. And people were injured. People died. It went, like, triple over budget. It's just bonkers what happened in the making of this movie. Yeah. yeah oh, just, yeah. Film's budget is quite big, but we'll get into that in a sec. Um, so, yeah, Chris is, like, ready to leave this house. Uh, she's saying goodbye to everybody. Father Dyer comes along and she says to him, like, Megan doesn't remember anything. But despite this, the sight of the clerical collar, like, sparks off something in Regan, and she gives Father Dyer a kiss on the cheek. And um, and then as they're leaving, Chris goes to give Father Dyer, um, I think it's this St. Joseph, back to Father Dyer, and he insists that they keep it. And then they they drive off. It's you know it's a it's quite a happy ending for yeah. Chris and Regan, and that's the end of the film. There it is. <laughs> There's the Exorcist. <laughs> Go forth and enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> watch out for all that shocking imagery. Uh, just you know, peppered throughout. Yeah, but <laughs> um, it's a fun. What are your thoughts on the the upcoming requel? I think it's meant to be coming out later this year. Yeah, yeah, I do have thoughts. Yeah, I do have thoughts. Um, the first one is why are we reinventing the wheel? Why can't we just let things be? Um, I and and it's because you know we we uh, modern media the way that we consume it has shifted. Um, I don't have enough time to go on that right now, <laughs> but suffice to say, it shifted. Um. And I hate it. I hate it very much. Um, here's what I'm scared about. Here's what I'm scared about is that, and and this is, um, I think modern religious horror doesn't work anymore um, for a couple of reasons. And so I'm afraid of The Exorcist being remade um, because I feel like it's going to lose the heart and soul of it. Because um, what you have, you know, currently is that millennials, the this rising generation, categorically no longer trust major institutions. And so it's less about not trusting Jesus, more not trusting Christianity. Um, and so without believing in that major good to provide the impacting dichotomy or like a cure to evil, evil loses its power. Um, kind of like I said before, when you when you lessen the power of the devil, you kind of inadvertently lessen the power of God just a little bit. Um, and so what I think you have now at this point is that filmmakers are just coming up with this visually, aesthetically spooky uh, 
effect essentially to get you into the biological fabrication of fear which is not the same thing as terror um and it definitely doesn't have the same meaningful interface with the content and so what the exorcist does right and i think this is why it's such a long lasting staple why i think it it really holds up it has really held up to the test of time despite whatever problematic things happen being anti-feminist being this thing or that thing um is the fact that it's I'm going to say this, is that it's not a horror story. It's not a demon story. It's a story of faith and doubt with horrific elements. Um, yes, Pazuzu was terrifying to a culture in the grip of satanic panic. Um, but what really, again, it's it's not a dichotomy of good and evil. It's a dichotomy of self. And that's what makes it so good is is absolutely the visuals are terrifying absolutely you see a disempowered body you see this wild change in in personality and it's very terrifying to imagine that sort of thing um but i i think that's that's the only way to do eldritch horror right is that uh and i think demons very much are they do fall in line with the category of eldritch horror because um the only the only way to do that is to focus in on the effect that they have to singular people it takes a sweet girl into a terrifying monster and it forces a priest to reconcile um and we just don't we don't do that in in modern filmmaking i think people have um with with, with horror a lot of horror content creators keep forgetting that what tends to make horror so good is not how much you can scare someone it's how much you can affect someone and i'm going to use the a effect there um that's that's what makes it so good that's what makes it so powerful other than that it's just you're triggering biological reactions in your brain and that's not that's not art is it that's not storytelling <laughs> really uh so that's how I feel about that. I'm not looking forward to it. Am I going to go see it? Yeah, I'm going to go see it. And I'm not <laughs> looking forward to it. I'm not going to be happy about it. And I'm going to rant on Twitter about it, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Yeah, I'm kind of in a similar boat. Like, I do just feel like this like version of The Exorcist we already have is so timeless because, like you say, it plays on this battle of the self and like that is a timeless story of doubt of all these things that you kind of said and like you kind of said as well like we're becoming a less religious society as well so kind of having the religious element which you do kind of have to have if you're doing films about exorcisms because they're a religious ritual then yeah. is it gonna work I don't know um, I don't. Yeah. So I'm... unless you can find some universal thread that everyone can relate to, you're not going to get very far. Just being like, "Ooh, Christianity icons being subverted." It's like, yeah, I can do that with a lot of other things. Um, and it's not going to mean anything other than I don't have respect for the sacredness of an entire culture, a religion, a practice, a people. At some point, you have to ask yourself, when is this rude? to do to someone else right mm. and and i'm not and i'm not gonna be like oh christians persecuted i'm not gonna i don't have a persecution complex at all about that um no 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 but 
it is sacred to some people and you have to ask yourself is a buck worth it Mm. just to be edgy yeah so if they can maintain the core of it then sure why not update some of the practical effects why not make it look just a little less um lime green perhaps (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a lot of green isn't there yeah but if all it is gonna be is just them sensationalizing all the horrible things that happened to reagan's body rather than actually paying attention to the story of it no yeah (laughs) not for me no (laughs) gonna be very upset Okay, so let's get into box office and ratings. Yes. Um, so you did mention this film went three times over budget. And I believe I do so. Yeah. Feel like it. The budget for the film was a well. I don't know if this is what it was originally supposed to be or what it ended up being, but it's eleven million dollars, which. I did kind of think like that's. I feel like that's a lot for a horror movie in the seventies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and they weren't in the business of making a lot of um, I mean, horror had its place as a as a, you know, pulp, pulp cult kind of entertainment. Right. And and a lot of that had to do with like the Hayes Code and the mm-hmm. way that it was publicized. It just wasn't like it just wasn't worth it to make horror with that big of a budget. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it had payout. Right. Is that the Exorcist went on to great renown uh and to to snag some oscars in the process of it but also like where'd you put that 11 million yeah so you're totally right yeah it made 441.3 million dollars at the box office so definitely made back that overblown budget but yeah i'd like the the uproar of the film at the time it could have gone a very different way but luckily oh, yeah. many people's curiosities were uh, piqued by the scariest film of all time so they managed oh, yeah. to make that money back <laughs> well and and if there's you know if there's one thing you can rely on about the human race is it's our morbid fascination with things that we should not be fucking with so <laughs> <laughs> which is why we keep remaking terrible remakes is because we can bank on people being like yeah i want to see some spooky demons let's go Uh, (laughs) whatever reason why we are drawn to that i don't know but i mean we've been watching public executions for a very long time so (laughs) this is just the evolution of that since we don't kill people in public anymore no yeah you um, and people used to take picnics to watch battles oh yeah oh that's so weird Sorry, I'd like to revise my statement. We don't kill people as corporeal punishment for entertainment in public anymore. Sorry. Uh, I'm not going to make any more social commentary on that, but I felt like I should uh, edit my statement there a little bit. Uh, But yeah, no, public execution. Well, and this is the funny thing too, is that the, the concept of exorcisms as entertainment is also not entirely foreign to the human race. As I mentioned before in 1647, um, about that possessions case, it was actually preceded by several other cases um, in, in France where these nunneries would just all of a sudden, everyone in the nunnery came down with demonic possession. And oh yeah, oh yeah, crazy, crazy. And this is what I'm about to present uh, in at the end of March is um, 
at one point in Ludon, um, this was in 1634 in Ludon, they built a stage in their town square to host these exorcisms where these priests and these nuns would just like get into it and do this do battle with with the alleged demon inside they did this for years in Ludon oh. and then when it died out after Ludon they did it again in Louvier in 1647 yeah so people have been into this shit for a while this is nothing new <laughs> to the human race uh and I, and I find it absolutely bonkers and I have thoughts about that which is why I'm presenting it but um yeah yeah absolutely wild it's so like you know that saying like things change no something's changed some things stay the same that's not the phrase but it's like the times have changed but it's like all these things that we do and they like tickle the like relevant little buttons in our brains and we're still doing all the same shit we're still doing it just in a slightly different way yeah we've got technology now rather than We can ride wide release this. You don't have to travel to France anymore for it. Did you know that people came in like from Scotland to see this shit? What? <laughs> people came in from all the countries over just to show up in France and be like, what is going on with these French nuns and priests? What are you guys doing? Uh, yeah. France has always been the epicenter of culture and fun, right? This is true. This is true. Yeah um so let's get into ratings for the exorcist so imdb rated the exorcist an 8.1 out of 10 the rotten tomatoes critics rated it an 84 percent and the audience an 87 percent and metacritic rated it an 81 percent um veil what would you rate the exorcist out of 10 out of 10 yeah. Um. I don't know. I mean, oh, I love giving ratings. Uh, and when I say love, I mean I I hate it because <laughs> it's always it's all somebody's gonna disagree with me. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and give it a nine. I'm gonna give it more credit. Um, than other people have in the past, and I'm gonna give it a nine for not necessarily its technical prowess not necessarily its literal mechanics of what makes it so good but because um of what it was um then and now what it stands um as a piece of our horror history as entertainment history um i think i think that's worth it i think it's worth it to give them that just one extra star for like hey good job with being with having a sturdy shelf life congratulations guys thanks for being the first horror movie nominated for best picture at the oscars uh <laughs> for setting the groundwork for all of us yes <laughs> i'll go um, ahead and get the nine uh and and fully accept my personal biases uh that contribute to that number as well as uh perhaps the more dramaturgical reasoning behind it uh, I agree. I'm gonna give it a nine as well. Uh, it's like it's it's the OG exorcism film, and all exorcism yeah. films that have come after have just tried to replicate its success and failed abysmally. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, nine out of ten for the OG. Um, 
Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to say about The Exorcist before we finish up? Um, highly recommend reading the book. I think the book is great. Um, take care of yourself before going into this. Uh, if you want to watch it for yourself, of course, absolutely do that. But take care of yourself. Uh, because it can be incredibly unsettling. Um, and uh, don't go watch the requel. I don't know. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. What if they do something great with it? What if, what if they listen to this podcast episode and they go, Vale was right. Redo the whole thing. Um, <laughs> what if, what if in this perfect world, somebody listened to me and my opinions? <laughs> I know, like, I always feel like such like a negative Nancy about like remakes and sequels and stuff like that. But I'm just like, I just want original content. Is that too much to ask for? Yeah, change my mind. Change my yeah. mind. Why don't you? Yeah. Uh, that's that's what. I, uh, and if you want to, I'll, I'll put in a plug because I'm a major simp for it. If you want to know more about the Ludon possessions, um, Puppet History with Shane Madey. Uh, <laughs> they oh. covered the whole thing. Um, oh, wow. go to go to YouTube. Go look that up. It's L U L O U D U N Ludon Possessions. Fantastic video. <laughs> I I absolutely love it. Uh, excellent history telling. Shane Maday, you have my heart. <laughs> also, um, on Discord, my just just fun fact on Discord, my image is the puppet professor screaming. Uh, possess me, daddy. So. <laughs> Thanks again, Shane Maday, for that image that I used uh, on my Discord. <laughs> um, Vil, where can people find you online? Oh, online? Um, well, at your own risk, you can find me on Twitter um, at Evil Little Vale. That's V-A-L-E. Um, I'm on Instagram by the same handle as well. Um, and if you enjoyed hearing my rants about demon nonsense uh, and and enjoyed my behavior, um, it, when finals week rolls around, when I'm doing like a ton of research, I make fantastically esoteric tweets. So by all means, be the peanut gallery to my uh, abominable behavior. <laughs> Pay attention to me. I want attention. Do it before I walk backwards and do weird yoga. On yeah. The <laughs> at your own risk. Um, you can find me at hi it's Lindsay underscore on all social media. You can find Lucy at Lulu underscore Pew on Twitter. And you can find the podcast at Girlfriend Pod on Twitter and Girlfriends underscore podcast on instagram me and lucy will be back next week talking about curses and drag me to hell so i'm buzzing for that (laughs) (laughs) oh i can't wait for that episode hell yeah (laughs) Uh, but until then stay spooky